Welcome to the Line of Sight Gaming Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 16 of the Line of Sight Gaming Podcast. My name's Chandler. I'm here with, let's go with Brett. Brett, I, feel responsible you... for, I feel responsible for this because I liked it so much. That's <laughs> <made fair>. it <laughs> yep. And uh, now for the next most important member of Line of Sight, we have Will Hungerford. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Why are you going to do Jaden dirty like that? That's basically my job. <laughs> Jaden's here, too. <laughs> uh, am I the intern now? Well, uh, oh, you could be the intern of this cast. I could be, can I? <laughs> Even though you like do everything you do on the other cast too but it's fine. I, i'd like to point out that when we had chandler's wife on the podcast she could do the opening from memory including oh yeah and Jaden's here too <laughs> yep yeah that's true yeah, that's she could it's basically why i keep her around i remember <laughs> uh yeah uh so as alluded to already uh we are on today with the wonderful will hungerford how's it going man we haven't talked to you in forever it has been a while. Well, uh, you know, got to talk to some members of the show at Adepticon yeah. uh, at length about the game, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, have been very busy leading up to the Kickstarter of Rivenstone, which, uh, as of the time of this recording, is five days away. It's on the 26th, so Tuesday. So. so so everything's buttoned up. Nobody's running around the office. With their head cut off, right? We're all good. Oh, yeah. No, everything's 100% <laughs> locked in and there's no there's no concerns. There's no <laughs> massive stress right now. We've been ready for like a week. We're just sitting here doing nothing. Oh, God. <laughs> if only. Glorious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're going to be talking a little bit today about Hungerford's newest project. I guess off the start. I mean, I, I can kind of start with because this is sort of part of our first question, but um what what the hell is Rivenstone? What uh, is that all about? So Rivenstone is a new uh, miniature tactical skirmish war game that is coming out. When I say skirmish, uh, about 8 to 15 models per player. Uh, it plays in about an hour once you know what you're doing. First couple games probably last you about two hours. Faye and I actually did a tutorial battle report that's up on YouTube right now on the Broken Anvil Minis YouTube channel. Um, and that was with us taking our time and explaining the rules as we went. And that whole game from start to finish was two hours. Nice. Um, it's it, We introduce a lot of, it, it's very modern design war game. So a lot of things that you've been seeing in other war games have been adopted because they just work very well and lend themselves to very smooth gameplay. Things like using measurement sticks uh, and the way movement is handled. Uh, certain, you know, like using proprietary dice to to massage the math we wanted to to go, alternating activations back and forth, which is of course is very popular. Um, but we have a lot of our own special sauce and our own special design that creates a game that is less attrition based war game and more tempo based war game, with multiple ways to play the game. It's a war game that you could ignore scenario completely if you wanted to and, and generate your own strategy, or play the scenario. Uh, and of course, we are. It's not just a war game. This is the introduction to the IP of Rivenstone. We're generating this very lore deep world with a ton of like cool art illustrations and stories to tell. And Rivenstone's going to be everyone's first intro to it, but we're already talking about doing like graphic novels and other games that take place in the world and as we talk more about the lore, it's it's definitely like if you're a fan of high fantasy, if you're a fan of like Final Fantasy, World of Warcraft, battle chasers, that kind of thing, um 
this is a game that will likely appeal to you aesthetically because it has a wide variety of of looks between the models and they're all it's it's fantasy at its heart but you've got you know gun blades and then you've got necromancers and then you've got like dwarf miners with flamethrowers fighting orcs riding saber fang tigers it's it's a very wild world with a lot of cool stuff going on yeah i think I think anytime you look at the models, the first thing you say is like they're characterful, like they're huge, they're chunky, they've got lots of like, like little details. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the thing: the scale of the miniatures is thirty-five millimeter heroic. So the base sizes we'll be using for the game are twenty-five, thirty-two, forty, fifty, sixty, and eventually eighty. Will probably be the biggest we go. Um, and but the models really fill the bases. You're, if you're a fan of painting big chunky models our models are big chunky models yeah i love how we had a part of the question that chandler didn't ask which was don't compare it to any other games and you still didn't do that that's amazing i had i had faith <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad i nailed it yeah because i i always i always fall back and saying it's like you know x mixed with y but i i want to hear like yeah what what you how you see it as yeah yeah, and I, when when people play it, I think there will be comparisons to other games for sure because there are elements of other games that, um, you know, have we we put our own spin on that just work really well. Also, mm -hmm. the game was designed by myself and and Oz, uh, and then developed by Faye, and you know, Oz, Faye, and I all shared an office at Privateer for many many years. So, I think there will be certain familiarity um, to people because we all you know have sort of game design uh likes that we we share amongst the the three of us and so yep. it, it's a very different game than anything we've produced before but it, it will feel familiar in many ways right yeah it's definitely a thing that like game designers have a not like a signature but like a feel that can be very common across games absolutely yeah nice yeah i so we sorry go ahead oh sorry. i was just gonna move on to the next question what do you think first Oh, I was going to touch on the models because, yeah, I've got mm -hmm. one painted up here that I've been delaying writing the script for the video to go with because I hate that part of that process. And, yeah, this is a freaking gorgeous, massive 40 millimeter Oryx model that was super fun to paint. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you made the World of Warcraft comparison, it, it all clicked. Like, it's exactly that kind of, like, yeah. path, lots mm -hmm. of character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My, my sort of description of these is it, it's like, what if WoW was a little less over the top and a model. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. And a big part of that comes from the owners of Broken Anvil. Um they so they come from initially a statue and collectible making background. They've right. been making really high end like those big $600,000 statues you see. And mm. they are huge World of Warcraft fans, big video game players. They all a few <laughs> years back, several years back started getting into the world of tabletop so for you know many of us that work there like myself you know i've been playing tabletop games since i was 10 and then we have people um that have been you know introduced to it now with rivenstone and then like our owners they started getting into it about like you know five or six years ago whatever it was and know. sort of they were like well we can make these these dope looking very realistic statues uh so why can't we make miniatures? And so they started making miniatures and then they were like, well, let's make our own game. And that's sort of how Broken Anvil came into existence. And they basically assembled a team of, you know, veterans from the industry. Uh, and that's where we are now. That's really cool. I don't think cool. that I realized that like the, the miniature production thing was 
I guess, just a means to the end of making the game. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it, it started off as they wanted to make miniatures. And so they did. Mm-hmm. They made, and they had some really beautiful, like, artist series miniatures, like Young Odin and this giant knoll and stuff. And then it very quickly became they made the miniatures because they enjoyed miniatures games. And so they were just making miniatures. And then mm-hmm. they were like, let's make a game. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, like, the skill that is, like, arguably the most expensive and prohibitive is the making the model side of the game. Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, talking to, to Doug Hamilton. He's like, yeah, uh, if you guys ever want to commission something off me, I'll give you it for this price. And I'm like, that that's the discount. And he's like, yeah, that's a pretty big discount. And I'm like, oh, OK, then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about a single a single model, so let's not even talk about concept art and illustration. Like this is just making the model once you already know what it's supposed to look like. Right. Mm-hmm. You have to have at least a sculptor. Right. Then you have to have engineers who understand how to cut it properly to make it into the mold so that it can be made. Then you have to have mold makers to make mm-hmm. mold. Then you have to have people that can run the machines, whether you're spin casting or resin or whatever it is, that can then properly make said thing. And then you have to have somebody pack it up. And this is just if you have one person in each station, right? That's just five employees that you need at minimum to make a miniature. Right. Uh, of course, in the industry, you have multiple employees per job position to make that happen. But yeah, making making a miniature is, is tough. That's why I'm always in awe of guys like like Sean Stutter, who does Relic Blade and, and Sludge, because he's like a one-man team. Mm. And he just does all this, like Relic Blade he did by himself. And it's just like, mm-hmm. dude, you you are a monster. Yeah, I talked to him about Dupticon. He's, he's a really cool dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would, that would be crazy. Okay. Well, Brett, you had a, you were going to move on to the next question, so go ahead. So, yeah, we were talking about like styles of game design, like how that kind of influenced decisions. And so the the biggest question on my mind, especially for a new game is how do you think about like what brings in new players versus what keeps people playing for, you know, a thousand hours or whatever? And if you have to make a choice between those two, how do you approach it? Um, a lot of it comes down to what kind of game you're you're trying to make because the kind of mm-hmm. game you're trying to make you're 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 figuring out what market you're appealing to. Right. I mean, miniature miniature games alone, like you can appeal to people that want to play Napoleonic historicals versus somebody who wants to play, you know, with their Gundams and have two models per side and have a really deep game where they're tracking mech damage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get something that was low barrier of entry, like Chris. Uh, Chris, our CEO, creative director, and one of the owners, his big thing is he was like, it's got to be fun. He's like, all I care about is that like people are able to pay, play with the models they want to play with, mm-hmm. no matter what faction they collect, and that the game is fun and that I can teach it to anyone even if they don't play minis games. Mm-hmm. So low barrier of entry, birth, both in the hobby aspect and the learning the rules of the game aspect was important. But then making the mechanics, even though they're easy to understand, deep enough that you have a lot of replay value and a lot of stuff to tinker with and play around with and make jank lists and like fine tune your lists and then Mm -hmm. keep coming back and keep coming back was the, the other really, really important part of it. Cause you can get longevity out of a minis game in a lot of different ways. For example, a game like Necromunda or Mordheim, you might only ever own your one gang, and that's like your eight models, but you'll keep playing it because it's got a campaign system, and you can reuse those models in multiple ways and get a different experience out of it. We went with the um, 
collect the models you want to collect, what everything looks cool, and then we will give you different ways to assemble those models into war bands and get a different experience. And then also we ensured that the actual gameplay experience through the scenario and event deck system, you could just play your same war band 10 times and probably have 10 very different experiences through the actual tabletop gameplay. Well, that last point in particular, I think, is really interesting to to hear, like, vocalize, because it's something that we've been noticing about a lot of the more modern games out there, is that there's a high emphasis on scenario play being non-static, as in it's never going to be the same game to game to game based on not just what you're playing, but maybe what your opponent's playing. Like, the extreme end of that would be Marvel Crisis Protocol, right? Where you know, the, the scenarios are part of your list and part of your opponent's list. But even right. something like 40K at this point is starting to adapt those kinds of things where they have secondaries and mission-specific weirdo secondaries that change things up. And I think that successful games are going to be doing that. I think that's like, you know how like, as game design evolves, there's new things that we discover that people really uh, resonate with. I think this is probably one of those things. And we're going to see most it, of the new games doing this. I think it is a result of people wanting to... So it's all about your options as a player. If you have a game that has a static scenario, then you better have a lot of options on the player's end of how they construct their force. If, it's your, if your Magic the Gathering is the perfect example. When we play Magic the Gathering, you have 20 life, I have 20 life, here's the win condition, let's go. But we have hundreds of options in how we assemble how we're playing the game in the sense of these the card pool, right? Whereas if you have a game that has the, the game victory condition, how you are getting to that point is less static, then it's less about the necessarily the options the player has to construct and more about the the limited options they have constructed and how it's interacting with the options that are changing on the other end of things. And I think there's been a push in the market for people that you know, assembling and, and painting miniatures takes a long time and people have more stuff going on. So if you can go, okay, you only got to paint eight miniatures, but those eight miniatures will still last you the same length as if you had, you know, a thousand cards to pick from and you were picking and choosing and optimizing with your cards. If you can find that balance between the two and just make sure that there is options and agency for the player, then you get a successful game out of it. Yeah. I, I also want to point out that it looks like there's a couple of different ways that you've future-proofed, like, easy ways to release changes that have broad effects that don't require a ton of money on either side. So things like affiliation cards, you could, in theory, print a new affiliation card with a different requirement, with a different rule, and that completely changes how an army constructed. You could print a new event deck and maybe, like, you know, like, seasonally, and that, that would mean, like, the whole season you're doing this event deck and that, you know, and then it changes every whatever time and so mm. having those easy avenues to change up how the entire game works without having to buy a whole new army i, I mean that's already literally what is going to happen yep. that is the, the plans verbatim yes. uh, yeah the co so. the coalition cards at launch are all mono faction and then there's one that's you can take any heroes you want but you basically don't get a coalition ability it's letting you it's it's just like the wild card do whatever you want but you, you don't get the strong ability but because of the keyword system there's already plans for a coalition that's like beast models. And then you're going to build this this army out of anything that's a beast across all the factions. And then you get something that synergizes really well with that. Because we, we know there will always be faction loyalty, but really the game is built around more like coalition loyalty. Like really choose the models you want to play and you will end up with a thematic force that has a cool ability that, that fits in that way. And 
because you can splash models and not break coalition. If you just see a thing that you're like, well, that's cool. I want to paint that and play it. You can. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I think not have not sticking strictly to faction identity is, is a really cool way to do that. Cause right. That's always, that's always a way to expand what you can play without having to release 10,000 new models. Yeah. And, and just from a person, like I play a lot of skirmish games and, mm-hmm. and when I play something like blood bowl, necromunda more time, and then a cool model comes out for another team or gang. And I'm like, I want to paint that, but I don't play, you know, Van Sar or whatever it is. Um, so in that situation, I have to go buy an entire new gang to be able to play that model. There's definitely one way to approach it. Uh, I personally like the way of that's a cool model. I want to play it. Bam, here I go. So games like, you know, MCP does that incredibly well. And, and, and I think it's something that we're trying to strive to do well as, as well. Yeah. And, and we can get tricky with like heroes where they can have like cross faction um, followers. Yep. Oh, we, the, the design space that we've allowed ourselves for this game to go is very wide. There's a lot of, a lot of room where we don't even have to introduce new mechanics or new rules. And we will still be able to put out things that are interesting and new for the players to experience for for years before we have to get to the first, you know, here's a page of rules for how this type of model works. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing is that um, and this is like not a gameplay thing at all. It's, it's a community building thing. But without like factions to be really strongly identified with, um, you don't have to worry about the sort of weird like, well, you got this like animosity that can randomly pop up um, sure. in communities, which as somebody who deals with a rather large amount of social media moderation, it would be like really nice to see for some of the games that I play, because a lot of the friction between players is like my factions, this thing and your factions, that thing. And the other person's like, no, it's not. It's this other thing. And, you know, that. Yeah, doesn't need to be there, which is really cool for Evanstone. Yeah, and I mean, if, even that said, there will be. I, I think the majority of players, especially at the beginning, will still be mono faction. Even we're seeing it now when people are talking about which which starter are you going to pick up, which which models you're really interested in, and people are like, oh, I can't really pick like Shattered Empire, like Risen, and we're kind of like, well, you can play both. <laughs> right. You know, do 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 what you like. Right. Yeah. yeah. We we'll we'll talk about wilds later. <laughs> I've got lots of questions. <laughs> um, but one thing we were talking, uh, one thing that I noticed when we were talking about future proofing is that you don't have point costs and models. And I think that's really clever. Um, and I want to give you the floor to talk about what uh, balance tools you have to adjust models that aren't. Well, you can take fewer of them because they cost more. Yeah. So there's there's two main balance tools there. So for people that aren't familiar with Rivenstone, first. You can go watch the tutorial about a report on YouTube, and you can also go to the Rivenstone game website. And I've written this huge blog series that goes through individual rules in detail for people that want a, a deeper a deeper dive than this podcast might offer. But mm-hmm. um, when you play the game, the scenario tells you how many rounds you play for. The event deck tells you how long each round can last. And at the end of the game, after you play X rounds based on the scenario, whoever has the most victory points wins the game. There are three ways to score victory points. And this is important for the balance of the models. One is the scenario. Scenario, each have individual ways of scoring them, whatever it might be, and you can score points each round off that. Then the heroes in your army both have a secondary that is unique to them, that is how they score victory points by doing something special. This might be, if they're an aggro hero, it might be like, you know, kill X number of enemy models every activation. If they're a control hero, it might be at the end of the round, if nobody's in the same quadrant of the board as you, you, you score whatever it could be. 
And mm. that is part of your game plan. It's like building a deck in Magic. You're putting the cards mm. in to play your game plan. But then every hero has what's called the bounty score, which is how many victory points they are worth to your opponent when they get destroyed. And that right there is two major balancing aspects. So we can have a hero that's only worth one victory point when it dies. And so it will be a little bit more straightforward and a little bit weaker than a hero that is worth four victory points when it dies or a hero that is worth seven victory points when it dies, which there will be one of those at launch as well. Because we're putting the choice in you, the player's hands, because it's risk versus reward. If I want a model that victory point wise is worth seven of another hero, it better do a lot of stuff. And it does. They really dominate the table. But all it takes is your opponent to kill it once. And then they've snapped back seven VPs up on, on the board. Right. And then often very powerful heroes can also have harder to score secondaries. And that makes up for just the sheer strength of the abilities they have is they may do a lot of damage and debilitate your opponent, but they're not really scoring you victory points in the traditional way. So that's been another balancing factor. For the followers... Um, the followers come in groups of musters, which is how many models you add to your warband when you choose this follower and how many of them you get to activate and how many you get to respawn. And so more powerful follower groups get less models. So you, if you have sort of standard frontline troops, you might get three. If you have a super elite follower, it could be one. It could be a follower group of one. And when a lot of the scenario play is based on, you know, having <laughs> followers go up and take control of things, having less models means you are worse at the scenario by default. And you have to mm -hmm. kind of, again, choose that risk versus reward. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting effect on... So one of the one of the core problems, one of the core designs of strategy, of skirmish games is, and alternating activation games, is, like, having more activations is just such a strong advantage. And so you make sure that everyone has the same number of activations ish. Um, and then you get to say, okay, I know that being in two or three places at once is more powerful. So what, you know, I have to give up this and give up these stats or whatever in order to do so. And I think it's cool to put that, to bake that into the design. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the things, the design decisions we were made are just things that we, we played in other games that we were kind of like, you know, we love this game, but we don't like this part. We love this game, but we don't like this part. And we kind of, singled out like what are all the parts we didn't like and and how can we address them and i mm -hmm. think we've we've kind of gotten there like the alternating activation thing of somebody having more activations well you can't really have more activations than your opponent in this game because there's always something you get to do on your turn even if it's respawning dead soldiers which is a tempo swing your opponent basically is kind of time walking you for a turn but you're still getting to do something and especially when the barracks that respawn models all have special abilities that let them do something unique during that respawn uh, stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool innovation. Um, you, you're talking about like more powerful heroes, maybe having harder to do secondaries has me thinking about yeah. like heroes that are complete dichotomies of like, this is a super powerful killing hero, um, but it only gets points by traveling around the board to like different spots. So you have to like balance killing things with him, but he doesn't actually want to do that if you want to score points with him. And so being able to just like take a hero and be like, these are your two massively different pieces. Which one are you going to focus on right now is a really interesting um, place to think about for me. We we literally have a hero that's like that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. The, the, the Shard Knight for the Shattered Empire is a, a tanky death dealing machine, but his secondary is you can run to the different objectives on the board and mark them 
And mm. at the end of every round, you score a victory point for every objective you've marked. And whenever he dies, all the marks he's placed have gone away. So uh, you can either run him up the middle of the board and just start wrecking house, or you can spend the time to go basically create this VP farm that then stays round to round as long as you can protect the Shard Knight and he doesn't die. And it just gives you, you know, two very clear choices of how to use them, or you can kind of go hybrid and be like, I'm going to mark this and then I'm going to go aggro. Nice. And I also want to point out how that's my favorite mechanic in that it creates more fun for your opponent. Because now your opponent has to decide, am I going to let him just run around and do his thing, or am I going to start sending people into the meat grinder and try right. to distract him? <laughs> because killing, that's his weakness, is when you kill him, it's such a massive, and again, this is why it's a tempo-based war game. Mm -hmm. You kill a Shard Knight, not only did you shut down the VP farm completely, but he's worth three VPs when he dies. So your opponent goes up on VPs by three, and then they've completely negated any investment you as the Shard Knight player had spent turns setting up. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty big and you'll see heroes like that. And then you'll see heroes that are just more straightforward. Like they're just like, I do the thing. I score points. I might score one here, one here, one here, every activation. Like they just sort of um, progressively rack them up. Right. And I also think the most important thing that I, the coolest thing that I've seen and makes it more of a tempo game is the pseudo random, um, uh, round length, like not knowing exactly when the round's going to end and when scenario scenarios going to be scored, I think makes it so you have to make really different decisions because usually it's very clear cut. Yeah. Uh, so for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, I'll go through it super fast. The mm -hmm. event deck, any event deck works with any scenario, and the event deck tells you there is a counter that says this is when the round ends. At the end of each player's turn, as they're alternating activations, they roll a twelve-sided die that were that resolves some other mechanics, but that die has one blank. Um, nine singles and two doubles. And whatever you roll on that die, you increase the round counter by that amount. So nine out of 12 times, three-fourths of the time, the round counter is going to go forward by one. Um, but one-fourth of the time, it's going to go off kilter. So if the event deck says the round ends when the counter hits six or more, that means on your first activation, my second activation, you know, we're, we're just moving in a position. But once you get like four counters on that deck, and that means anybody could roll a double and then the round just ends. You have to kind of start planning for that. And there's no double active, no back-to-back -back turns in this game. If you went last in one round, then I go first in the next round. Mm -hmm. um, but it also means like sometimes the counter's at five of six and you're going now. And you're like, okay, I'm going to try and blitz the objectives. And if I, you know, and I take score a bunch of points and then you roll the blank and the round doesn't end and your opponent gets to clap back. And so I'd say like the last two ish turns of each round is really tense. Cause you're like, am I the last player this round or am I not? And you have to, you have to play around with that a little bit. Yeah. That's such a I mean, fascinating concept. Like I can't think of another game that yeah. does that. Most I, people just think it's an inherent flaw in turn-based games. And right. To be, to, to, yeah. To be the first or second player. Yeah. It was something that, you know, we, we, there was a lot of iterations of how it works too. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately, this is the one we we ended up on that worked the best. And I think it does solve the the second player problem to some degree. Also, because on turns one, two, or three, you might now, if everything continues to go on kilter, but somebody rolled a double or a blank in those first three turns, then suddenly, you know, who you thought was the second player isn't midway through the round anymore. If things mm -hmm. go normally, and you'll see the strategy just totally flip on while you're while you're playing. Right. Yeah, that's really really cool. I like that a lot. Speaking of another interesting mechanic, how does the exhaustion uh, the exhaustion system work? 
So every time a model activates, when it completes its activation, it gets an exhaustion token. Every model has a stamina stat. When you activate models, when you choose which kind of models you're activating, heroes or followers, you cannot activate a model if it has a number of exhaustion tokens on it equal to its stamina stat. So if you're stamina one, you basically get to go once and then you can't be activated again. If you're stamina two, you can activate once. And then the next time it's your turn, if you want to activate that kind of model again, you could because they're not at, you know, they don't have two exhaustion tokens on them yet. When you start a turn, if every model in your in play has an exhaustion token on them, you clear them all off. And at the beginning of each round, you do the same check. Does every single one of my models have an exhaustion token on it? I clear them all off. If not, you do what's called a partial clear, which is you choose one of your heroes and you totally clear them. And you choose one of your follower groups. You look at their muster stat of how many models are in that specific group and you clear a muster's worth of that model. So um, you, you get to clear a couple guys, which means you might be able to have a hero go more times than you thought they might have. Like maybe they, they went, then your next turn they went again and they were, they were maxed out on exhaustion and then somebody rolled the double and the round ended and you don't get to full clear. Well, if it's a partial clear and take all of it off of that hero. So the next time I go, that hero could go again if they wanted to, if I'm just not feeling my other hero's actions are the best choice for me at that moment. It's particularly brutal with, there are models that remove exhaustion tokens from friendlies and there are risen models that put exhaustion tokens on enemies and putting an exhaustion token on someone destroys their action economy so hard when a hero who is stamina two activates runs up and is like okay i'm just positioning for next turn i'm going to go with them again and have them you know blitz in and then some risen models like nope here's an exhaustion token and they're like well crap yeah yeah and, it, and it's interesting that putting a token on them is really devastating then but it makes it easier to clear off the whole army so you're gonna be you're gonna be spending a lot of time deciding between whether you're trying to activate on everything so that you can get back to full or if you're just trying to like keep your army uh, like larger so it's covering more area yep. and, yeah and it's also I'm... like the round length of the game length so there's two hero games and three hero games it's two mm -hmm. heroes three followers or three heroes four followers the game length is the same right. you play the same scenarios and the same event decks and what changes is in a two hero game you are getting more clears Mm -hmm. So it is a little bit faster. In a three-hero game, you're getting less clears, which means every time you activate something, what it does is more important. But you still play the game in one hour either way. Yeah. So, yeah, because it's not strictly like this, but it's kind of like you have to activate. You have to go through your whole army before you can get back to it. Basically, so, yeah. yeah. Unless, somebody, unless somebody messes with that, or you choose to clear exhaustion using somebody's special rules that allow mm -hmm. you to do so. Yeah, that's such a cool okay. mechanic. So, so um, I I love the resources, and I like how you have to spend game actions on them, like giving up tempo. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's interesting how it plays into how melee ranged and magic works. So one of the, one of the things that always interests me in these fantasy war games is trying to make the inherent advantages of ranged attacks weaker. So how did you go about that here, and like what what mechanics are are influencing that? The, it's it's pretty deep actually. So yeah. there's three there's three main resources you're trying to manage at all times. First is vigor. Everyone has seven vigor, and re vigor recharges for free every round. Vigor is used for things like charging, uh, taking cover, moving through difficult terrain. But one of the most common ones is every time you make a roll on the die, there's one facing that doesn't count as a success unless you burn a vigor. It's called focusing. 
if you burn a vigor for that role, you count it as success, which changes your odds of success greatly. Mm-hmm. Um, the other mechanic is Rivenstone Shards. That's a mechanic you have to actually go physically, like you have to interact with things to get Rivenstone Shards, which unlock your most powerful abilities, such as buying extra actions. And then the third sort of hidden economy is your exhaustion economy and making decisions of, I could activate this hero again, but I don't want to. I want to activate this other hero that's in the back so that I do have one on all my models so that I do full clear. Or Mm -hmm. I'm going to remove these exhaustion tokens from my followers because my plan is to have them go do X and Y so that hopefully if the round ends at this time, I'll get a full clear. That's the, the sort of more hidden resource that you have to consider. But when we were looking at ranged attacks, we were looking at three things. First off, line of sight blocking terrain and how the line of sight system works, which is very straightforward and easy, but being able to just flat prevent a missile or magic attack because they can't see you. Then creating an inherent defensive bonus that existed without you having to do anything, which is that if you are at the far, the extreme range of a missile or magic attack, you focus your defensive value for free. You don't have to burn one of your seven vigor. Mm. Vigor goes really fast. It is super important because it's used for models abilities, changing the dice, taking cover, running through training. Like there's so many things you use vigor for and you only get seven of it. Yep. Um, so giving everyone basically a free vigor on every extreme range roll was another massive part of it. Third, you know, there being again a cover system. So if someone can see you, but you're using terrain properly, you can take cover from these kind of attacks to get more dice, which is something you can't do against melee. And fourth, Whenever you make an attack in this game, you roll an attacker die, which adds a supplemental effect. And one of the 10 facings on the attacker die is misfire, which says your ranged attack just misses no matter what. Doesn't matter if you rolled 50 successes and they rolled none. If you rolled a misfire on the attacker die, you miss. And having a one in 10 chance that your ranged attacks auto miss helps balance the game. Because this is a game where like turn one, I can shoot in your deployment zone. Absolutely. And it's meant to be a game where the action starts from the drop where we are just going as soon as we possibly can because the but board's tiny right the board's three by three yeah and there are models that have a range of 24 inches mm-hmm. not every model but there are like you know the 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 line fusiliers who have their their long guns can shoot that far if they want to sacrifice right. an action um and so because of that we kind of built in this four-tier system that range attacks are just inherently powerful because of the way the game works but they have drawbacks to them and so you have to use them properly and even then you have a 10 percent chance that your best laid plans will fail yeah I, and i think one thing that people are going to miss is the subtle distinction between ranged and magic where it's just like it's it's a range attack that's even more expensive and even yeah. more limited magic follows basically all the same rules as a range attack except a magic attack can't misfire okay. um and when you spend Rivenstone shards that you've mined throughout the game to purchase additional actions, um, melee and missile attacks cost you a single shard, whereas magic attacks cost you double um, mm-hmm. because they're a little bit stronger in, by the core mechanics than a missile attack. But also magic attacks, this, the, what they do in the game is inherently more powerful than missile attacks. Even if they do the same amount of dice and same amount of damage, magic attacks almost always have a rule attached to them that does something bonkers good. Notice that. <laughs> yeah. Like, an example, you could have a ranged hero that's rolls four dice and its damage is two crit four. And then Corum, one of the risen necromancers, 
has a, a missile, a magic attack that is rolls four dice and is damage two four. But whenever he kills someone with it, you can burn a vigor, and before they pick their model up, you replace their model with one of your undead soldiers that have died. So you get this huge tempo swing. You're like, okay, I'm gonna shoot your guy off the objective. Oh, and now I have a guy where he was standing on the objective. Yes. And so you get magic attacks that do just really potent things like that. Yep. And it's cool how there's a natural system to limit how many you can get of those. Yeah, well, you can you can spend you can buy as many attacks as you have shards to spend, but you start taking damage as you mm-hmm. go past your threshold because you're basically going super saiyan and breaking yourself apart. Yep. So the, yeah, the limit is your own death. <laughs> yeah. Um so speaking of heroes, um, I've noticed that there are like so what we call in other games, like character and non-character versions of heroes. Mm-hmm. It seems yep. like is there is there a like equivalent to field allowance like a number of heroes you're allowed to take or like are you, can you have multiple of the same character you can't have multiple of the same character every so the amount of heroes and follower groups you are limited by the game size you're playing where you can do it in the two or three follower group game okay. um you can have as many of anything as you want but you're kind of limited in that there's only so many slots to fill mm-hmm. but characters have a stat called true name and okay. you cannot have two models that have the same true name so okay. for example Tor, the hunt master who's in the the orc starter box that's the guy with the bolas who's riding the giant saber fang you can't have two tours and down the road if we do another tour who's tor riding a giant murder bird or something you couldn't have both tours in your army okay and and i think it's really interesting how the non-character versions aren't just powered down like they have very distinct rules from what we've seen before where they're the very they're a similar model so they have some kind of base characters that are similar but they go in just super different directions yeah absolutely yeah i mean we, if you want to never run a character in this game you do not have to whatsoever and we've seen strategies internally and through our external playtests where people are like oh yeah no i'm just gonna run three of this this veteran and my game plan is very narrow because they all have the same secondary and i'm running three of the exact same model but you have a very focused list that does one thing just you've got to hope that one thing doesn't get countered and and this is just another example of making it easier to get more gameplay mechanics out of you know fewer models to buy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the skewiest lists, there's a, a veteran, they're worth one VP for the Shadow Empire called the Patrol Runner. And their secondary is if they end their activation uh within two inches of the enemy barracks, you score victory points. And so the idea with them is that you get behind enemy lines and you go next to their barracks and you stand there and you go, okay, I scored. And then your opponent has to either turn around and start allocating resources to get this model off their barracks uh, or they ignore it. And then the runner just sits there and shoots people around the barracks and then just ends the activation next to the barracks again and scores again. And so you can, it's sort of this harassing little scout hero. So some people are like three hero game. I'm rolling, running three patrol runners and my list blitzes your barracks and just stands around it and tries to rack up VPs. And it's like, cool, I'm running a super castle list. Come on in. Like you're never, you're never going to get here. And then you start slaughtering the patrol runners and they're like, oh no, my list has fallen apart. So you can skew in this game, but it it it's not as detrimental as, as some other games. And you do have to be really concerned about hard counters that you will run into. It's always better to have a little bit of a diversity in your secondaries. Yeah, I, I, I want to... So we talked at Adepticon about um, factions that could just sit and mine victory points. Um and how do you balance that against attrition and scenario victories? And I just kind of want you to restate that for everyone. 
I mean, a big part of it is the scenario. Scenarios dictate where the, the objectives are, mm-hmm. where the Rivenstone deposits are, and also how you interact with that scenario. And so dwarves, particularly, are the Iron Guard, are very good at scoring victory points off mining Rivenstone. So if you have a scenario that has Rivenstone deposits close to their deployment edge, you can see, you'll see these dwarf strategies where they, they castle up around a deposit and then they sit there and they're like, okay, we're just going to mine away. Mine, 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 score victory points. But then they're not engaging with the scenario at all. So your opponent goes, cool, I run up on the objectives. Oh, you scored six VPs over the course of the entire round by mining Rivenstone. I score six VPs because you didn't run up the board or try to stop me at all. And then that really balances out. Um, so, and then, a, a and then big, yeah, like any kill or any secondary completion from the person who wasn't just sitting back on their own. Yeah, exactly. Put some, put some ahead, or they get one ranged hero that can snipe out one of the Iron Guard heroes back in the back, and then their entire plan falls apart. So, mm-hmm. you, it is, it behooves you not to skew. You can, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll victory, you'll get victory that way sometimes. But really, creating a versatile, um, like plan of attack is the best way to play Rivenstone. Which, if you have two heroes. Yeah, just take two different heroes. Give yourself the options. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's that that idea that you know you'll win games, but you probably won't win a tournament if you're going to skew like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it would be it would be very difficult to to do so. And a big thing, you know what the scenario and you know what the event deck are before you build your warband in the core gameplay. Regarding organized play in the future, what we'll do so that people don't have to bring their entire collections is you'll have a pool of you know like if it's a two hero event you'll you have a pool of three heroes and four follower groups it'll be like basically one bigger than what the actual size is and when you find out the scenarios you'll choose which two heroes of your pool you want to bring so you get a mm-hmm. like kind of a little bit of a sideboard oh, um we we on this podcast are big fans of sideboards we yeah. sure are <laughs> it, it, yep it, so you you at least know what you're going into to choose your mm-hmm. warband so that helps a little bit so you're not like this is my warband and you're like oh man if i get the scenario i just auto lose like you get the conscious decision and the scenarios are so varied and different. Like there's a few of them that are like taken hold, but a lot of them are like, you have to run up and like have models make rolls and interact, or you have to go grab this thing and run it back to a place. So you can't just stick with the same skew strategy. There are scenarios that will just deeply punish you for trying to do that. I think I misunderstood you. How many event decks and how many scenarios are coming out with the Kickstarter? Uh, the core rulebook has 10 scenarios and there are three, Three event decks in each starter box with a fourth event deck in one of the uh, blisters. Oh, wow. Okay. So, okay. I thought it was going to be like two and two. So there's a huge number of combinations, even from the very beginning. And then again, oh, yeah. it's easy to print more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've got, yeah, we've got eight symmetrical scenarios at launch and then two asymmetrical ones. And the asymmetrical ones flat out say they go, uh, it's like, a, I forgot what the line is exactly, but in the rules text of that scenario, it says, this scenario is harder for one player than the other. This is not as balanced of a, an experience if you play the other eight. So please be, you know, uh, be aware of the challenge. This is for more advanced players. And at a, mm-hmm. an organized play event, we wouldn't run those. That's just for like, if you and your buddy are playing and be like, let's play one where I get ambushed and I start in the middle of the board and you show up from all the corners and I have to try and, you know, be a last man standing kind of thing. We just mm-hmm. give you that option if you want it. Nice. Cool. Having something narrative like that baked in is a really good idea. Yeah. 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 I mean, narrative is a huge part of it. You, you, there's no scenario and no event deck combo that is provide some narrative to you. It, you are never fighting over a nameless zone. 
any game of Rivenstone you play, there's a story of what you're doing, and that is changed by the combo of the two pieces coming together. The yeah. the most basic one is the tutorial scenario called Motherload, which is simply you found a place with a bunch of Rivenstone. There's three objectives in the middle that would be a great place to set up a mining operation. Fight over those objectives. Fight over the fight over the good ground. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it gets more involved. Like you found machinery in the wild, and there's ancient mining silos underground. So your models have to go turn the machines on and then hold them in place and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah, cool. because even beyond the because you get the thematic elements of like, oh, this is what we're actually doing. But you also get do the mechanical changes of like, you know, sometimes you have to do something physically different for each scenario. I think it's yeah. really important. Yeah, I agree. Nice. Okay. Well, while I'm fishing for Kickstarter spoilers. Um, <laughs> so, so um, we've seen almost all of the rules. I think probably by the time this comes out, we'll have seen all of the rules for the the four factions but we keep talking about wilds what are yeah. what are some of the wilds models that we can expect to see in the kickstarter you know soft launch at the the kickstarter they're only getting two models they're getting one hero and one follower group and then okay. in wave two wild gets more developed significantly okay um including like i i think one of our stretch goals actually like one of the highest stretch goals we have for the kickstarter is that wild gets more of their models bumped up and then they get a starter in the kickstarter um that would be cool Wait, so can I back up? Can I back up one second? Yeah, uh, can you yeah. explain? Is, is Wild like a full faction like the other ones? Are they like mercenaries? I didn't quite understand that. Wild is a full faction. Wild exists as the place for us to put models that don't fit into one of the other nations or factions in a way that makes sense. It's it's here be monsters. When okay. we want to do an elemental, a dragon, a madman, uh, a, you know, something like that that doesn't really fit into a, a, like a military structure. That is what wild is. It's the it's the wandering monsters and factions of like the NPC kingdoms in our world that you might you might come across. Um, because everything in the game is kind of like mercenary in that you yeah. can splash models from other other factions. Right. Um, so we're introducing um, the terrestrial fiend and the terrestrial imps in the Kickstarter. There are two elementals. It is also the only legend model is the terrestrial fiend. It's a seven VP death. Uh, model that just it, it literally has rules that blow up terrain and kill everything around it and that's its <laughs> that's its secondary one of its secondaries is you choose a piece of terrain within a certain range of it you make a magic attack roll against every enemy model within two inches or standing in that terrain and if you kill any of them you score your secondary and it could do that once per activation so it ignores all terrain rules it can walk through walls it can walk through solid rock it doesn't matter it is a model that blocks line of sight models don't inherently block line of sight but this thing does as if it was a piece of terrain and it blocks line of sight to your models but not from your models nice. <laughs> yeah, it's just this giant swirling elemental of like rocks and, and animated magic uh so this thing runs the board and the 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 balance of that is if you kill it you score seven victory points so <laughs> When you're playing with one, you kind of have to hold it back and like play really smart with it. Because if you just like, oh, it's a big monster, I run up there and I go punch things, and someone's like, cool, my one VP veteran loads up on Rivenstone shards and beats you to death. GG. Like, you have to be real, real cagey with it. Nice. Man, I, I keep going like, oh, I really want to play that faction because you're like dragons. And then I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. I can probably just splash that, can't I? Hmm. You absolutely can. Hmm. You absolutely yeah. can. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard to break that habit. Yeah, and no, seriously. 
the fiend comes with the fourth event deck because the fourth event deck is the tale of beasts which involves you choose either a wild hero or a hero with the beast keyword and they become that's not in neither player's playing it's just you know you have this extra model and it becomes uh, an npc that throughout the whatever scenario you're playing it's just running around the board killing people and the event deck is its behavior deck. And it, it's totally different than the event deck you saw at Adepticon, which was like an environmental, like there's a storm coming and here's the global effects. That event deck is, this turn, the beast on the table is trying to kill these kind of models and here's how it activates. And so while you're fighting each other, you could have a terrestrial fiend running around just murdering the board that you have to deal with. So in, in, a, in a normal game, in a core game play, like before, or maybe with organized play in mind, how do you choose these? Do you do you randomize between the four decks? Do players like have one attached to their list? So our initial organized play is, is going to be very like narrative driven. Like we are doing the battle of whatever, and it's going to come with its own scenarios and its its own event deck that is unique oh, it. Yes, and so that's we, what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, we can we can tell our own stories, and then it'll simply be, you know, this is a three round event, no matter what. And you play round one, this scenario, round two, this scenario, round three scenario, and this is the event deck you use for X, Y, and Z. Um, because and then and then you keep running those events while it's fun. You can switch back between old ones once we get a big stable of them. Yeah, that's yeah. That's awesome. And we will also have what coalitions are legal during that event. And so for the beginning, it's going to for many a while, it's going to be all coalitions. But as the game gets bigger and bigger, we want to have a built-in mechanic that will be some old school coalitions and some new school coalitions so that players will, if they go to that event, they don't feel super overwhelmed by like, I have to worry about every model that's ever been released. It's like, no, here's, here's the coalitions that are fighting in this part of the world. And it will make sure it covers every faction. There's models from every single faction and there'll be tons of options. So you don't feel yeah. left out, but it'll allow us to have a built-in limiter on these guys just didn't show up to that. Or we might have concurrent narrative events where there's two different narrative events and half the coalitions are at one and half of the other. That's, that's stuff that we're planning for the, the far future. Yep. Yeah, I think more game, more tabletop games should be seasonal like that. Yeah. And of course, there'll just be, you know, evergreen stuff that's like, you know, bring whatever you want to. But mm -hmm. we, we very much have in mind that, you know, as the game grows, eventually a player looks at it and goes, there are 50 options. I don't know what to do. And so we want to have that, that area that you can always come into and be like, no, here's here's the ones you need to worry about. Don't worry about the 50. Yep. Yeah, like this reminds me of um old school L5R where it's like the the the, the outcome of previous events changes how everyone plays the game for the next year. It's like yeah. sandy like that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and because the game's so narrative driven, we want to make sure that the organized play events always feel that way. They always feel like you're doing something in the world of then. Cool. Yeah, well. I, I will love to see when that's printed because there's there's a lot of ways that can go. And I think yeah. Fun. Um, Are you going to do things like that where the the you know result of some year long culmination event changes what's going to happen next year? Not for a long time. We really got to get people first to know what the world is and get them to understand what's happening and tell some baseline stories of mm -hmm. you know, here's here's what's what's going on and you can you can be part of these battles. But in terms of like player results affecting the world um I, I think we have to we have to get our foundation under our feet first and then you worry about going into that that big stuff because i i wouldn't want to do a year one like okay you decide what kingdom gets destroyed and be like people are like wait what i didn't even know this kingdom <laughs> existed we, you have to get the investment first before yes. we move to that yeah that makes sense. people start play role playing yeah yeah okay so Rivenstone rpg 
<laughs> Question mark? Uh, don't be surprised if you see that happen in the future. Yes. All right. Excellent. All right, Brett, you can you can do the next question. Yeah. So speaking of fun stuff, um, of the stuff of the models that we're gonna see in the Kickstarter, which ones did you have the most fun playing? Oh, I'm a bad person. And so <laughs> my two favorite factions to play are Iron Guard, the Dwarves, and Risen, the Undead. Risen because messing with someone else's action economy is it's very much the the demir magic player in me and just mm -hmm. being like mm -hmm. nope you're not doing that oh you have tor he ran up the for the board you've got six shards you're ready to go ham and murder my entire force just don't go again this round instead H how's that um so i like doing stuff like that and then iron guard are just this wonderful puzzle of of economy that you can play and be like you know, I want to maximize my 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 monetary gains, my Rivenstone shard gains every turn, and then also be winning the game through that. But I have to defend myself and then also figure out where to apply pressure to stop my opponent from winning on scenario or doing their own thing. And just unpacking that puzzle is really fun for me. But when I want to just murder stuff, I also just reach for orcs. I'm like, okay, what's what's your game plan? You're going to try and take this. You're going to try and mine this. Oh, you're going to try and use a special action i'm just going to punch you in the face as hard as i possibly can as many times as i can oh you're dead good game <laughs> yeah yeah my heart is like very conflicted here because the way that the risen sound like playstyle wise is the thing that i love the best but the oryx have the coolest looking monsters and i also love painting the cool monsters so i'm just like i don't know Good news, Jaden. You can play both. Oh, yes. That is the theme of this episode, <laughs> isn't it? I'm just going to call yeah. this episode Rivenstone. You can play both. You can play both. And everybody's going to be confused. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> All right. And then we'll end on the question you always ask us to um, ask you, which is... Which I, I've forgotten, by the way. <laughs> so what are you playing right now? What are you excited to play next? What's... Um, if, if you weren't running a Kickstarter, what would you be doing for fun Rootstone right now? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm playing a lot of Magic right now, playing a mm -hmm. lot of Commander, really tweaking my decks, playing 40k, looking forward to the new Chaos Knights stuff to come out. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm pretty excited about the changes to the Death Guard that you now my Terminators count as obsec. That's that's really cool. Uh, um, I've been playing... That's I'm not great. I'm not excited about? about that. My my so I started playing 40k like a year ago and I've only played about 25 games and most of those have been against Death Guard and I already hate it. <laughs> well, you know, I don't have to tell you like they're the best they're the best legion, they're the best chapter that ever existed, so, you know, just hard, hard to, to argue with, with that. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I might just get some at some point. Uh, and I'm excited to see also what my 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 tied favorite legions are Night Lords and and Death Guard and I'm mm. interested to see what the, the Night Lords are all about in the new codex. Um, and then other than that, I picked up the Bloodborne board game, um, and it's a lot of fun. I've been really enjoying the the mechanics and, and some of the ideas they have behind that game. And they've got, you know, cool looking board game minis and lots of expansions for it. So just been having a blast playing that. Cool. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of fun things out there in the world right now. People are like, come look at my products now that stuff is opening up again. Thank you again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know I, I kind of know something about that. Speaking of, don't forget to come look at Rivenstone. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really great product. April twenty sixth. April twenty sixth. <laughs> April twenty sixth. Yep. Yeah, we'll be sure to put like a bunch of announcements about that in our Discord or on our Facebook page, and um, I'll probably write up an article thingy before it goes live and be like, "Look, go here, buy these models. They're really cool." 
Um, yeah. Hopefully I'll have a video about painting them beforehand. And also I'm probably going to post this video like a week early for public release since it'll be before the Kickstarter then. So sorry cool. to our patrons, but you don't get this one ahead of everybody else. I don't think. Oh, time sensitive. Yeah. Cause it's time sensitive. So yeah. Oops. Did you get a flinger from Adepticon by the way, Jaden? Did one get sent out to you? Oh, what? Uh, a fl the flinger, the, the orc model. You got, oh. you got one, didn't you? Yeah, I've got, I've got one oryx dude with a bone scythe thing. Yeah, okay, that's a flinger. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely have this because what I would like to do is, is get you some of the other, the Ooh. other models if possible. But you know, a big part of the reason we're doing Kickstarter is a lot of the elements of the game are done, but like. The Kickstarter is literally to kickstart the funding of the game. Like, how many more CO cast machines do we need? How many more engineers mm -hmm. do we need to hire? How much do we have to produce? Right. And then putting the funds into making all of this stuff. So, right. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and with the models I got from Adepticon, I did an article going through like what the, like the ins and outs of how CO cast looks and how it turned out. So, yeah. 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 I'm excited. Like, I'm excited. To, we have our like prototype models, but I'm excited to see like the mass production versions of like Bellcroft mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And also be able to see like hobbyists start painting those models because they're yep. huge and gorgeous. Yeah. I think, yeah. They yeah, are really I think cool. Lots of questions. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. No, I'll be, uh, if, if, uh, conveniently because certain rules for other games were updated recently, I suddenly have two weeks of painting free time ahead of me, uh, that I wasn't expecting Ooh. to have. So, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But uh, <laughs> I'll see what I can do, Jaden. Sweet. Yeah, no, they, they're really fun. I really enjoyed painting this first guy. Um, he was like, I was like, I'm going to speed paint this five hours later. Like, <laughs> I'm not speed painting this anymore. He's too much fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I had the same problem. We're like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to make the skin look real good. I'm going to do this extreme blending technique. I'm like, Jane, why is this taking so long? He's like, the models are big. You know that, right? <laughs> Yeah, it didn't actually take me five hours. I think I kept it down to like 90 minutes. But yeah, it was just like, wow, this is way more fun than I thought it was going to be. These details are so chunky. And like, if you were paying all your followers for Oryx, there's mm -hmm. eight of them in the starter box. So mm -hmm. congrats, you're one eighth done. Nice. That's yeah. crazy, actually. Knowing that, I might go back and do a better job on parts of him. Uh, but, you know, yeah, no, it's really, really cool. And um and I'm excited to see what the other ones look like. I'm excited. Yeah, like I I have realized that my job in life for a while until I have slightly older children is to be the hobby dude. And so I'm really excited to see what people are doing with these. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. I'm not sure what happened to Chandler. So I am alive. He's alive. <laughs> I am absolutely alive. Uh, I guess that's Jaden asking me to do my job. Uh, <laughs> a little bit so in closing i want to give a big thanks to everybody who supports us on patreon you guys are all absolutely wonderful even though we're completely snubbing you by posting this one earlier get wrecked <laughs> uh, <laughs> now you all are absolutely fantastic you've been supporting us for so long and we are super grateful for it uh, if you want to check it out it's at patreon.com slash los war machine you can also, of course, find our website, which is LOSWarMachine.com. If you hop on there and look at our show notes, you'll find a link to our Discord. You can see a lot of really cool stuff on there, including the fancy name color that you got for being a patron because you mm -hmm. signed up for that. Well done, <laughs> you handsome fellow. Uh, yeah, you can get onto our Discord. There's uh, all kinds of wonderful conversation with all sorts of different gamers about all kinds of different wonderful stuff. 
And that's always a pretty good time. You can go to our Facebook, which is just line of sight. You can shoot any of us a message on there if you would like, or you can use that to see any of the articles and stuff that we post pretty regularly. Uh, is there, I mean, aside from the obvious Kickstarters, anything, anything you want to plug, Will? Uh, people should go hit up rivenstonegame.com. You can go sign up before the Kickstarter starts and get on the newsletter. And if you get on the newsletter and then you pledge during the Kickstarter, you will receive a free mystery gift uh, for being an early, uh, like, pledgy. Uh, also, for anybody paying attention, there it will be an early bird special. So anybody who pledges in the first 48 hours gets a free terrain pack to match the starter that they have Ooh. got in their pledge level. So uh, definitely go to RivenstoneGame.com. You also have a countdown of when the Kickstarter is going live, and you can sign up for the newsletter and get your free stuff when the time is right. Don't Broken right. Anvil also have a Patreon that people should go check out because they're making pretty cool things in the meantime? Absolutely. Uh, Broken Anvil Minis, you can go check out the Patreon. If you are more into the STL side of things and you want to do some 3D miniatures for your RPGs, uh, you can go sign up for the Patreon there. It's $9 a month, and you usually get about 50 STLs to That's crazy. customize. Holy crap. Yeah. Uh, you get it's thematic every month. So like one month was like, you know, the ice Island and we had like penguin people and like snow orcs and ice dragons. And we make pre-supported STLs of all sizes. Uh, so if you want to do some of that, go check it out, but also rivenstonegame.com and the Kickstarter is April 26th. Don't miss it. Nice. Nice. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on and, and hanging out with us for a little while. Yeah. And I look forward to hanging out with y'all up here in the Pacific Northwest in about two weeks. Yeah. Be wonderful. All right. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.